Hi guys, welcome to another edition of the Red Wall Podcast. I'm your host, per usual. My name is Marcelo Inostroza, and I'd like to welcome y'all to episode number 62, entitled The Director. All right, guys, well, with all that being said and out of the way, today is kind of a special show, a kind of a special edition of my show, because I have one of my good friends here, uh, Matt Crandall. Uh, for for those of you who are uh, who are you know a part of the YouTube space and watch a lot of YouTube videos, you might know him from a little uh, show that he does with another good friend of his called Armchair Directors, where they review uh, mo- classic movies. They 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 review new ones too. They talk about Star Trek, Star Wars, pretty much anything under the sun. And the cool thing about them is they're not traditionally. Uh, you know, like standard YouTube critics. They actually have in-depth, interesting conversations about all sorts of pop culture things and and all sorts of uh, they 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 uh, they bring different angles and they're, they're just a really awesome channel. So if you want to check them out, I highly recommend you go and check them out. And he's also known by a little uh, podcast that he does called Radio Eight One Five with someone that you all know very very well. So. Uh, without any further ado, I'd like to welcome my friend Matt Crandall to the show today. Welcome, Matt. Thanks very much for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, it's, it's great to have you here. I, I've uh, I've wanted to have you on the uh, red wall for for quite some time now. So I I thank you for taking time out of your day to uh, join us today. And I would like to start out by asking you just this: How did how did you initially? Uh, want to become, you know, a writer and a director. How did that, how did that start basically? Basically, you know, growing up, I was crazed about movies since like a very young age. Um, my parents would take me to the movies. My, I have a cousin who also was like really obsessed with movies and growing up as a kid, I would go to my cousin's house and we would just make movies at his place with all the cousins and that kind of thing. And so I sort of really liked you know, the acting side I liked, but I also really liked the, you know, coming up with where the story would go and where we would put the camera and that kind of thing. And then as I got older, I realized that was like the auteur writer director aspect of it. Um, so in high school, you know, I did a lot of drama and writing plays and directing them and then decided to go to film school to try and, you know, write and direct movies. Mm hmm. Um, I've heard through the grapevine that when you decide to go to film school and forego your acting career in stage uh, on the stage, uh, your your professors or a couple of professors weren't too happy about that. Right, they were kind of they were kind of ticked because I was at school. Um, you know, there was a couple of kids who were like the head of the drama department. Um, I was one of them who, you know, did a lot of acting. And that was my main focus, but that was kind of only like a means to an end because I thought I would like to act, but I mostly would like to like write and direct and then put myself in my own stuff. Um, so I had some, some teachers who were surprised that I wanted to do film because we have, um, well, I don't know if it's still on anymore cause I, it's over now, but, uh, in Ontario, there's a thing called the Sears drama festival. That's like a, a big thing. And, um, we got to the finals a bunch of times where, you know, you, you do a play locally and then you go to regionals and then you go to like the finals. Um, and I won a few like acting awards and stuff at this, uh, festival. So I had, you know, a, a track record of being kind of like a comedic guy. Um, and then when I, you know, wanted to forego that for, for just film, they were kind of ticked. And I should note that the guy, who was sort of like the golden child the year before a couple years before me um, is now Emmy award-winning actor, Luke Kirby from uh, marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So he was like the other guy who he decided to go to the acting program and he went to the drama school of Canada or whatever in Montreal. And uh, then he went on and now has won an Emmy. So I made the wrong choice. I made the wrong choice. <laughs> Well, you never know. You you could you could write or direct something one day that oh yeah, I, uh, I plan on it. Kicks off into the stratosphere. I'm happy with it. Um, now, as far as your writing influences, like what are some of your biggest writing influences from a scripting standpoint? Like like what do you what, what do you lean on and what do you 
uh, look at when you're developing a script or when you're getting ready to write a script. Right. So, you know, as I was going through film school, I had a bunch of scripts that I would always take a look at and read. Um, a lot of Tarantino, Coen Brothers, um, Magnolia, Paul Thomas Anderson, and one of my favorites is Big Fish by John August. So there's like a few that I would look at just to see how different people would write stuff. Because, you know, when you read a Tarantino script, it reads way different than, say, like a Coen Brothers script. Partly just because you can get the feel of the vibe and there's a lot of like the music cues written in that most people don't do. Um, and then I would go back because I do also really enjoy sort of horror and that kind of stuff. And I would read some Sam Raimi, um, some of the early Peter Jackson like scripts just to, to see how those guys were doing it. Because what I really want to do, you know, I, I love big action movies. I love big concept horror but everything that I end up doing has to have some element of humor and levity injected into it just because that's the kind of stuff I gravitate towards. Mm -hmm. So you're, so you're like, uh, uh, you want to fit a, a big budget action way, but you want to have some, some B stuff in there too, right. To, to, to bring up the levity. Would I be right in making that assumption? Yeah. So, you know, there's a couple of guys who they, they kind of do that. And I, certainly would never think that I'm as good as like a guy like Edgar Wright, but that's a guy who, you know, he makes a movie like Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz and they are, you know, a horror and an action, but they're also comedies at the same time with, with huge concepts. Um, or something like Scott Pilgrim was kind of like the right up my alley for that kind of movie that I would like to, to make. So big effects, big concept, but also, you know, kind of a, a tongue in cheek kind of thing. So, that's one of one of those like main influences that I really respect. Now, a lot of a lot of times when uh, uh, directors slash writers, a lot of times when they come up uh, with an idea for a script, uh, even before they write it down, they basically they basically do a do do an outline of uh, of the script before they actually go in the writing process. Are you one of those guys that do that does? a full uh, fledged outline before you attempt to write the script? Or are you one of those guys that just has an idea and then you just go to the script right away? You don't even bother with an outline or doing some character bios or anything like that. For me, it really depends on the kind of movie. Cause I've done, I've done it both ways. Um, so for example, the project that I'm like still working on, like a fifth, fifth draft of, which sounds like a lot. Uh, I did write, like a 15 page outline that basically took me through all of the like important scenes, the nuts and bolts of where the plot had to go. And this particular movie is a, I would say kind of like an, uh, a Sam Raimi esque army of darkness kind of thing. Um, that's a creature feature, but it's also really funny, but it's also scary. But because it had a plot that had to go from like one place to another, to make it make sense and to help reinforce the themes. I really had to outline everything where I wanted to go and sort of the characters to make sure I didn't lose the thread of who was where and what was happening when. Um, mm. But then I've written a few comedies. I wrote a, um, a movie that the script got a little bit of traction, which was a mockumentary about the world championship of air hockey called blowing the dream that I'm still going to make one day. Um, and when I wrote that, uh, basically I just knew that I had five main characters from around the world who were the, the top five ranked players of air hockey. And then as I, I didn't write any like outline, I just literally started going and like a week and a half later, I had 118 pages script done. Wow. Okay. Um, so with that being said, what would you say is more, com what, what uh, would you say you like doing more? Do you like, uh, uh, doing the outline more? Or do you like shooting from the hip more without a proper outline? What's more comfortable for you? Basically for the most part, I like to just go for it. Um, because I do think that the way that my process works is the hardest part is just getting anything onto the page at first. So as long as I get, you know, I can write 90 pages and get the bones of a movie down. Then I can spend a lot of time 
doing other drafts and fixing individual scenes as long as I've sort of got the bones of it. But I, I like to actually just write the whole script, you know, with the dialogue and that kind of stuff. Cause it really helps me envision where the, where it's going and who the characters are. Whereas like the outlines, when I write like a really detailed outline, it just feels kind of boring. <laughs> and I, and sometimes I think like, Oh, I might not want to be locked into this, but Oh, it's in the outline that way. So I would say 20% of the time I will write like a really detailed outline and stick to it. But the other 80%, I've just got sort of the, the idea of running around in my head and I just start to try and write the script. Cause as long as I can get a first draft done, then you can spend all the time to refine it. And even if I'm writing a scene and I'm like, man, this scene is not coming out the way I want it. This sucks. Uh, as long as I make sure what happens in the scene is what needs to happen, then I just move on because I know I can always revisit it and fix the dialogue or the nuance of the action later. A lot of, you know, you know, a lot of the, a lot of uh, screenplay writers and uh, directors and cinematographers that I know, I've asked them one question and they've all really given me uh different answers uh based on their experiences mm -hmm. and i'm and i'm curious uh what you would say to this uh uh question i i didn't i didn't traditionally go to film school i learned how to write uh uh screenplays by just taking a, a random screenplay uh course in mm -hmm. my local college yeah and um so here's a question the question that i would ask my friends and who would have various different ways of answering this. Do you think it's important for a guy who wants to become a writer, a director, a producer to go to film school and learn how the process is done? Or do you think it's better to do uh, an avenue like a Quentin Tarantino working in a, working in a, uh, working in a, um, a, a adult film store, just, uh, just uh, renting, uh, uh, renting out VHSs and watching movies and doing stuff like that. What do you think is more important? To go right. to film school? Well, for me, not? I would say, you know, film school, 100% waste of time. <laughs> so I loved it, but it's 100% a waste of time. It uh, You can learn everything by just watching movies. And nowadays, you can just go online and download the screenplays. You're going to learn way more by reading those and watching film. When you go to school, you do meet other people who have the same interests. So that's the main thing. Like that's if you can find somewhere else to connect with people who also want to be doing the same thing to find that community. That's the only good thing that came out of film school. You know, I had a blast doing it. You know, my homework was to watch movies, write about movies and make movies, which is what I wanted to do anyway. But in terms of getting a job, nobody, nobody is at a, a meeting and, you know, you pitch an amazing movie and they say, OK, but did you go to film school? Like it never happens. So mm -hmm. I would say you can learn just as much by downloading scripts, reading scripts, but it is important. Like I said, when you meet people who have similar interests and you form that bond in a community, that's sort of like the only positive of film school, but film school is so expensive. You're better off taking that money and making a movie. Mm -hmm. Now, um, when I told various members of my family that I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to Right, right. Movies and right for TV. I got a lot of, I got a lot of pushback and a lot of questions. Why, right? Mm -hmm. Because I used, I used to be a sports guy. I used to be uh, uh, addicted to sports. But I reached a point in my life where I saw something very significant, and it was like the light bulb moment for me. Right. And um, I was curious when you told your family that you wanted to go to film school. Were they generally supportive of your decision or were they like, really, Crandall, you could be doing anything else? Why are you doing that? Uh, no, they were supportive. Basically, because, like I said, since a young age, like mm -hmm. my favorite thing had always been movies. So it wasn't a surprise to anyone. And, okay. and there was nothing else that I actually ever showed any interest in wanting to do. Really? Yeah. So like it was never... Nothing. No, it was never like, oh, I could be a lawyer or a like it was never that never was a thing. So So you were like, No, it's pretty interesting though. So you were like a so you were like a Dawson Leary type. You were like, This is my destiny and I'm gonna do this. If I don't do this, I'm gonna die trying. Right, exactly. You know <laughs> that that show really hit home with that character, especially because it was like watching a documentary of, you know, my life. 
Right, right, right. Now, um, another uh, point of your process that I'm sort of curious about. When I went to film school, I mean, sorry, I didn't go to film when I, when, when I was in the screenplay writing class, mm-hmm. the, the instruction to learn how to do it, I found to be so overwhelming and so confusing at, at first yep. that, um, that it, it really didn't go well for me the first two times I took the course. I mean, the first two times that I took the course, my viewers know this, I blew out. I, 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 I couldn't take it anymore. Right. Right. It got so frustrating that uh, in my in my six in my six week of class course uh, in the in the first go around, I went online and I read the script for the West. I read the script for the TV pilot of the West Wing. Right. Mm-hmm. And up to that point, my professor said, your scripts have to be very detailed. Your scripts have to be very specific. And I read a script for the West Wing. And I felt like I wanted to throw my computer out the window. Because if you read that thing, if you read that thing, you know what that thing is? That thing is just 99% dialogue. There's yeah. n- there's nothing there. It's like... It's like sure, sure, sure. It's not. It's not ninety. It's not ninety percent. But it, it just has one little blurb explaining where the characters are, and then go. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, what? <laughs> so you, so you, so we don't have to be this specific. What do we have to do? And then I read, and then I read another script from another one of my favorite writers, who, who, who did this was a standard screenplay, right? Mm-hmm. And he he wrote screenplays completely. Different. He wrote. Uh, his writing style was completely different from Aaron Sorkin's writing style. Yeah. Right. So his included like, 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 like this, like, like the, like the atmosphere, the, 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 he described the couches, he described this, he described that. Right. And then I read another one and then I'm like, and then I'm like, so wait a minute, you're telling me I have to write it like this, but look at these people. They, this guy broke the rules. This guy didn't even pay attention. And this guy, I don't know what the hell he's doing. (laughs) Yeah. So it was it was extremely it was extremely infuriating that I was being taught one way, but then I was seeing people I admired doing it a different way. Yeah. So did you did you find that when you read scripts? Like like how did you how did you figure out what elements you like to do and and, and how did you figure out like like your writing style when when writing a script? How do you like to um, how do you like to format a script right. per se? So generally, and I'll be honest, it's partly because I'm more interested in the dialogue and that kind of stuff. When it comes to like the action <laughs> moments in a script, I don't write a lot and I don't describe everything. Are I just, lines? I just don't. Um, so, you know, I make sure there's enough there that it sets the scene and you understand the action of the scene. But there are some guys who you read and they've got, you know, eight paragraphs without any dialogue, just explaining the action of a scene and what the room looks like and the wallpaper. And like, that's not, that's not what I do. Um, partly because I intend to direct a lot of the stuff that I write. So I feel like I don't need to put that many descriptors in because I already know what it looks like. But if it's a script that I'm writing specifically like for someone else or something, then I will add a bit more to give a more vivid picture um, just to get them to visualize the essence of the scene. But I always make sure it's just the important things. So, you know, if there's a reason that a room has to have blue paint on the walls, then I'll include it. But if it really doesn't matter, then I wouldn't bother with that kind of, you know, description in there. But I've seen it some scripts are super exciting that have a long passages of description, but then there are others that, you know, the, the, you read a script for like an action scene. And it just says like car chase car drives off a bridge. You know, our heroes are hurt next scene. And you're like, okay. And then you watch the movie and it's a five minute car chase and they drive off a bridge and it's insane. But literally it's like four lines in the script. Um, and then there are other guys that you read a page of a script and it's super long. And then you watch the scene in the movie and it's 10 seconds. <laughs> so, uh, I sort of fit in the, in the middle sometimes, but I generally like to be sparse in the details because I want the viewer to come up with stuff or, or the reader rather, you know, to come up with their own picture of it. Partly because if I ever have a meeting with somebody who's read a script, sometimes they bring stuff to the table. I didn't think of. 
that they read the same thing I wrote, but they interpreted it different. And so then you're talking to them about a scene. And sometimes because if I leave it a little bit vague, you know, room for interpretation, sometimes they can come up with an idea when we're just chatting of how they thought the scene went. That isn't what I intended, but might be better. And so then I can go back and just add some details to solidify the idea. Mm-hmm. What uh, what's your opinion on putting like uh, like um, um, uh, direct uh, uh, directing cues into your script? Do you do you tend to do that, or do you tend to leave that out? Since you said that you uh, when you write most of your scripts, you usually intend to direct them to you usually intend to direct them yourself. So do you put those little things in there for cues for yourself, or you just leave them out? I leave them out for the most part. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't put that kind of stuff in it. Um, I know there are people who do, and that's great. But for me, I usually don't. Okay. Um, now, now, so if I'm understanding you here, your your approach is sort of less is more. Am I getting that right? Yeah. So, you know, enough details to convey the action and the the atmosphere. But I, my worst fear when somebody's reading a script is that. I describe something too much so that they get bored while they're reading the script. Right. So Mm. if you ever want somebody to get excited about your project, the script has to read almost as exciting as watching the actual movie itself. Um, And for me, like, I just think, you know, even some of the best writers, like, you know, if I read a Stephen King novel, there are some chapters where the guy just goes on and on and you're like, okay, we get it. Um, the description can overwhelm the reader sometimes. And so with a script, I usually err on the less is more just to keep the flow of reading the script going, uh, mm-hmm. so that they don't get bored and say like, why am I bothering with this thing? Mm-hmm. Um, now, why do you think that when people are being taught, or at least when I was taught, why do you think my professor was obsessed with seeing the whole picture. Do you think he was obsessed with that just because just because he was teaching me and he wanted to see that I got the basic format? Do you think that's why he was saying be so specific, don't be so specific here, or you should add this, you should you shouldn't do that? Why do you think he was doing that to me basically? Probably just because that's the way it traditionally has been done. And a lot of those courses teach you like the stuff that has worked traditionally for years and years, Mm -hmm. but there's always exceptions to the rule. And you got to remember that, you know, if you want to push the boundaries of the format of writing, sometimes you have to break the rules. And even there are certain movies that if you read their script, um, you know, the script can be confusing and ambiguous, but then when you see it on the screen, the way that it, it all makes sense because it flows different when you're watching a movie than when you're reading a movie. Um, you know, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule of every script has to be this clear and this descriptive. Um, but a lot of those old school guys like, you know, Robert McKee and whatever teach you the basics of what you need to know. But I think people shouldn't be married to those ideas because, we aren't going to, we're going to get the same movie a hundred times if nobody ever steps out of the box. Right. I think, you know, you know, when I, when I left that course sort of defeated because my professor, well, not my professor, but a lot of people in the class who read my scripts said I wouldn't, I was the worst writer in the class and I wouldn't amount to anything. <laughs> but, That's yeah, helpful. Well, yeah, no, well, see if it was, well, yeah, but they, but they basically said that I'm off one. I should quit. So, um, I I sort of because I failed out of that course three different times, right? Mm-hmm. And um, so I went back to the drawing board and I really questioned my career choice. And I said, "Fuck it! I want to I want to write and I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and teach myself." So yeah. basically, what I did was I took a collection of my favorite writers, I read their scripts, I saw what I saw what elements they used, and I infused those elements in my own writing as far as. As far as formatting goes, I didn't take any of their dialogue or anything right. like that. Yeah, I'm not a I'm I'm, I'm not a crook because <laughs> the first thing the, the first thing that they teach you in writing school is is do not plagiarize because if you plagiarize, you're fucking dead. You're not working this town again. Yeah. 
Um, so I, I didn't do that. But what I did was I took my favorite elements from some of my favorite writers, and that's how I adapted my style, right? Mm-hmm. So my style is – most of my style comes from my favorite writer-director working today, and you know who that is. So yeah. um, I, uh, I, I was curious if you – did some of that or if you sort of took the course and then basically said, okay, I understand how to do this, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to do this. Did you, did you sort of hybrid your writing style to match one of your favorite directors or did you learn the thing cold and said, okay, I'm going to use that, but I'm not going to use that. I'm going to use that, but I'm not going to use that. How did you, how did you come up with your voice, so to speak? Yeah, it was a little bit of both. Cause like I said, I read a lot of scripts before I really started writing. And even when I first got final draft, you know, it came with a bunch of scripts you could read built in. So you could Mm -hmm. see how they wrote, you know, episodic TV or, or movies. So just knowing what had sort of been done before and how other people did it made me, you know, conscious of that. But for the most part, I just, like I said, you know, the way that I write, is just something that I find pleasing and I don't want too much detail, but as long as the essence of it and the, the, the pace is there, that's sort of what I go for. And as hard as I try to write like straight drama or like a a low budget, like two hand or two people, small locations, I always end up having some sort of huge special effects concept that comes in or crazy comedic dialogue that I just, I just love too much that I, (laughs) I I dream too big sometimes. Yeah. So, so I think it would be safe to say that you don't write people generally talking in rooms a lot, do you? Not, not usually, but um, sometimes, sometimes that can be like the funnest part, but I know that one of the things that I really had to work on when I was in, you know, screenwriting class was subtext and the way that people do talk. Um, because I had a, a teacher like for a long time who was like, your dialogue, like nobody speaks this way. They're all saying what they're thinking. And then I would like rewrite it so that it was all subtext and implied. And then they're like, nobody talks like this. Nobody's actually saying anything. And I'm like, okay. So then I had to find like the, the middle, middle ground between that, right? You know, the way people maybe actually talk where they say something and you have to read between the lines to figure out how they're actually feeling or what they mean, right. which uh, can be difficult to nail. No, the one thing I got um, uh, most times when I was writing my scripts was, why are you writing everyone like they're 40? These people are <laughs> these people are like teenagers. Why the hell are you doing that? Yeah. Right? And I'm like, dude, my my biggest influence in my entire career is a little show where these where the main characters talk like they're 40 all the time. Yeah, can you imagine so, if Kel- Kevin Williamson had listened to that note? <laughs> like he wouldn't oh have a career. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But the thing is, but the thing is, when I was in class writing that I had to court I had to I had to put that in there, but I had to, you know, bring it back a little bit because my professor's my professor was getting annoyed at me because he's like, You have these teenagers talking like they're why do you why are you doing that? why it it doesn't make sense mm-hmm. you know so i had to like i had to like you know make them dumber you know <laughs> um, well, and sometimes it, i would just be like guess what you know movies aren't reality if they were nobody would watch them <laughs> right. uh, yeah now um uh, i want to move on to another part of your career the 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 part of your career uh, if you even call it that that you're most known for is armchair directors can you just talk a little bit about that and how that came about and and how you started working with your partner Mm, yeah me and mercy um you know he's done the armchair directors channel for just over 10 years now and uh we've slowed down a lot in our old age um partly you know scheduling and that kind of stuff and we used to live 20 minutes apart and now mercy lives two hours away but uh we were both just two local filmmaker guys who we met at a local film festival at a city hall. And, uh, you know, Mercy said, have you ever thought about reviewing movies? And I said, well, I haven't, but I do like, you know, I watch everything that comes out and then I tell people to go see it or, or not. You know, my family and friends are always asking, Oh, is this worth my time? 
So we just thought, okay, let's get together and we'll watch something and turn the camera on and then just throw it on the internet and see what happens. And, uh, so we did that and then we would meet up like, you know, once a week, uh, Mercy was one of the first guys I knew who had a big screen projector. So I would go to his house to watch movies on, you know, his wall, uh, <laughs> like Lord of the Rings and stuff on the big screen. Um, and so then we would just roll tape afterwards and do that. And then that turned into, um, we got a local TV show on a local channel here and we submitted, you know, basically it was like three reviews a week. Um, was our half hour show. And we did that for a couple of years uh, until they had some problems with one of our episodes audio and they wanted us to redo it and they were really rude. And uh, so we walked away from the TV show because we were doing it for free. Like we weren't being paid. They were helping us get on some, you know, press screening lists or whatever. But uh, then we just made it our regular thing on YouTube. And, um, you know, never a huge following, but the people who watch us have stuck around and we appreciate all of them. And, you know, we're not the Jeremy Johns kind of, uh, you know, four minutes of quip <laughs> quips kind of reviews. It's, you know, me and Mercy will sit on that couch for 40 minutes talking about a movie and it'll be like the minutia of it or that kind of thing. So it's not everyone's cup of tea in, in this day and age where, you know, if a video is longer than three and a half minutes, people turn it off. So if you don't want to watch a 30 minute review, then we're not the channel for you. But if you want to just see, you know, the stuff that we grew up with or those eighties and nineties, like actioners and special effects comedies and stuff. Um, and that's the kind of stuff we talk about all the time still. Mm-hmm. Now I'm curious who, which one of you came up with the name on your directors, because I do find that so catchy and it's, and it's so, it so makes sense, especially, uh, uh, the, the first reviews of you guys that I saw, you guys are sitting on a couch basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was kind of like a spitball session. Cause, um, I think there was a mention of from mercy of like, you know, armchair critics. And then we were like, well, but you know, we're both directors. So maybe that's more catchy. And, um, and then we just settled on armchair directors. I would give, you know, 70% of the, the title to mercy and, uh, claim the other 30%, but it was just like a spitball thing where we agreed like, yeah, that sounds good. And now of course there's, there was always armchair quarterbacks and that kind of thing. But now there's a million podcasts like armchair expert and armchair, whatever. So it definitely has, has been used a lot now, but 10 years ago, there weren't very many armchair directors in the market. Let's put it that way. Were you surprised uh, initially when you guys started the channel that um, you say your audience isn't isn't that big, but I would I would eat my own foot for even half the audience that you guys have. <laughs> were, you, were you surprised um, when that started happening? Did you feel like like oh my god, you know, a, a, a whole part of the world sort of opened up for you? Did you feel that way? How did you feel about that? Kind of. So like you know when you start. And you get a couple of views, you know, it's like oh, a big deal. But then when you had a video that hits like a thousand views, it's like, okay, now we're talking. And then I remember early on, I went to a very advanced screening of Scream 4. And, I love uh, that movie. And Mercy didn't go, but we did a video for it. Um, and that review got like 30,000 views or something which was our biggest video at the time. And then I was like, wow, like this is actually starting to, to take off. And we needed to figure out a way to try and maintain that audience. But of course, you know, it wasn't often that we were seeing movies three months earlier or anything like that. It was mostly, you know, we'd have to go and pay opening weekend and then try and get the video up while people still cared because of scheduling that ended up being really tough to maintain. Mm-hmm. And um, because Mercy had this big projection set up at home, he didn't like the theater as much because of the distractions and the popcorn chomping and the talkers. Um, whereas I, I hate that stuff, but I still, you know, pre COVID would go to three movies a week 
and I got to see a movie like the minute it comes out. Uh, so it ended up being harder and harder for us to still review new releases um, in a timely manner. So we switched to a lot of classic reviews and video, you know, when stuff hit Blu-ray or digital reviews. And I would say that slowed our momentum a bit only because, you know, a lot of the people looking for movie reviews aren't looking for a movie that came out eight months ago. They're looking for a review for a movie that came out that weekend. Right, right, right. Um, now, now were you, were you, um, concerned when you guys did have those scheduling difficulties and you couldn't, you know, get together to review this movie or that movie, or do you wait a long time for this movie to come out? Were you concerned that your audience was just going to, you know, split in half when you guys did that? Like, was there any, was there any conversation of that? Was there any conversation about, you know, I think we should just take a break and sort of retool everything. Or did you guys said, no, we're just going to keep going. We, we always have just sort of kept doing our thing. Cause we haven't really worried about how many people are watching and we have taken long breaks. Um, <laughs> a lot of summers we've taken off, which, you know, so many movies come out in the summer is kind of insane that that would be when we would take the break, but that's when real life would get in the way or, or whatever. Um, and so then I started my own channel where I would sometimes do solo reviews, but I didn't have the drive to, to really keep that up. And when Mercy started his solo channel, because I did mine, we still were doing armchair directors and his started off as more like some TV and movie stuff and a little bit of toys. But then he started to really find a following for his action figure stuff. And that's pretty much all he does now. Right, right, right. I love his, uh, I love his reviews. Uh, I love his review of the the Cheers box set that he did way back. I really liked the, mm-hmm. the review that he put together for that. That was really good. Um, but you did mention that Mercy uh, uh, these days is pretty much doing his own thing with his own channel, which is makes sense because he does get paid for that, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> um. Now, um, when did you when did you get the idea that you wanted to? diversify your online portfolio a bit when did you get the idea that you wanted to do a pod uh that you want to do a, that you wanted to move into podcasting when did you get that idea uh well when you when you sent me a message no, saying do you want to do a podcast was pretty much the only time i thought sure i'll do a podcast wait a minute, uh, wait a minute. I'm, I'm sorry go ahead so i i didn't really think much about podcasting um personally until you sent me a message about it and then i said why the hell not? <laughs> wow. No, no, I know because I, I, I could, you know, I could swear like, like in one of our conversations, I think you mentioned, I think you mentioned that to me before. I'm like, I was like, so it was me, wasn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, yeah. So no, um, how do you, um, I mean, guys, I did say, I did say at the beginning of the, uh, of the podcast here that, um, he does a, a, another podcast, Radio 815, with someone that you know very well. It's no surprise that someone is your host, me. Yep. Um, so, no, so um, how, are you, how are you liking the day-to-day, the week-to-week uh, uh, podcasting thing? Are you liking that or do you like, or do you like doing videos more? Or do you like writing more? Or, or how, do you, how are you enjoying that so far? I like the podcast so far. I, I'm having a good time. And, you know, I've told you off camera, like, I'm really enjoying just the stuff that we're watching. So it's been forever since I've watched Felicity, Alias, Lost, Fringe. It's all stuff that I have been wanting to revisit, but haven't had the time to make it a priority. So now that I've got this podcast we're doing, I can sort of make it a priority, like, and find the time. Um, Also, because... COVID is going on, a lot of my normal stuff that would maybe take up more of my time is all on hold. So it's like the perfect time to do it. Mm. Um, Cause usually I would be, you know, running around town trying to go to film festivals or like advanced movie screenings or concerts and all that kind of stuff. But uh, since none of that is a thing, it's nice to just, you know, spend some time revisiting these great shows and I'm finding it just a lot of fun. Right, right, right. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very curious. Um, when, uh, just, a, just a couple more questions here, and then I'll, uh, I'll let you go with, uh, on with the rest of your day with whatever you want to do. Yeah. Um, I, um, I find it, 
I'm, I'm very curious. So when you made your first film and you took that first film and submitted it to a festival, what was that whole process like? Were you like, oh my God, this is the one that I'm going to submit to the festival. I'm going to do great. And, you know, were, were you like panicked to, to all hell or were you like, like, this is not going to work. They're going to fucking hate this. Half the time, you know, you just got to trust your gut and just hope that you can get somebody to watch it who will connect with it in some way. And so like when I've made some movies and you send them out to, you just try and send them out to the most festivals that you can. So if you get too hung up on like, it has to be an A list festival only, then you're setting yourself up for disappointment. But I just try and think like, if anyone will accept this in, then I'm just excited to have it playing somewhere. And, you know, I've had some short films and stuff that people have been asked to read other things because they saw that and they liked it. Um, I mentioned my air hockey script earlier and that one, uh, I actually went to like a, a pitching competition and pitched it and won first prize. Um, and I had some meetings with Canadian literary agents who really liked it and they wanted to do something with it. But at the time they were like, we really like this script and like, we will represent it and send it out. And I said, great. Just so you know, like I'm a hundred percent attached to direct this. And they were like, okay, never mind. We don't want to, we don't want to do this. And I'm like, well, listen, you know, if you think there's something here, I don't want to just have anybody, you know, sell it for a couple of bucks real quick and then have it sit on a shelf and never get made. Um, which, you know, I don't know if you've heard those horror stories where, Movie yeah. studios buy scripts that are similar to a movie that they're making and they have no intention of actually making those movies and they buy them and then they just shelve them forever. So that was sort of like my main concern. And, uh, you know, if I could go back and, and change my mind, maybe I would, but, um, you know, I think when you're submitting to festivals or pitch competitions or screenplay things, you just got to go for it and trust your instincts. Right. Now, when they told you that, were you like, dude, why didn't you know that? I, did, did you think I was going to sell this to you outright? Did you have any clue that they were going to react that way? Or, uh, or were you like, or were you like shocked? You're like, what, what are you guys thinking? Well, and I, I even said to them, like, you know, can't we just send this out and then worry about that later? And they were like, no, like we would want in writing that you're going to, you're going to sit this one out and just let us do our job. And I'm like, well, no, no. Um, part of it, unfortunately for me, <laughs> was the guy one of the guys I was talking to at the time was about was about to quit his agency and start his own. He was pulling like a Jerry Maguire. And mm. uh so because of that, like he really liked the script, but he needed some sort of like sure thing without any like strings attached if he was gonna strike out on his own. And uh because I had these strings that I was not willing to to cut he was just like, now's not a good time. Maybe in a few years, like look me up or whatever. But, um, I've always just held on to this script thinking like one day I'm going to find a way to get it made. Um, but also, you know, it was a comedy script that I wrote 10 years ago now. And comedy has changed so much in 10 years that I'm in the process of a massive overhaul just because so much stuff that didn't seem, you know, triggering and offensive in 2010, when you read it in 2020, stuff plays different, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, um, I no, no. The only the, the only reason that I bring that up is because uh, because of one of my favorite creators, J.J. Abrams. I got I got this stupid idea in my head one day that I wanted to create a production company, and I was and I was interested to to see if I could do that one day. And I I went to all the legal rigmaroles about how to do that. Mm-hmm. And it is a very, very complicated process. And it's interesting that all of my favorite writers and directors, they didn't start out initially like that. What happened was they hit it big and then their company was formed off of their success. Right. Right. Which is a much easier route to go for sure. Right. But, you know, because, you know, because of the because of some of my disabilities and some of the things that I can or can't do. Yeah. I, I, that's why I wanted to have my company basically my way so I could give 
opportunities to people like me who wanted to be right. a filmmaker or a director or a writer, right? Because here's an interesting thing. I'm the only disabled, well, that's not true. I, I, uh, I know one other disabled screenplay writer, but that's it. I mm-hmm. don't know anybody like me who wants to write films and work on TV shows. Right. So I, so as much as the company was, you know, uh, uh, and, 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 you know, a sort of, uh, dream of fancy for me, I, I said, you know what, if I could do this company one day, I could give an opportunity to people like me to, to enter the film industry and to feel and to and to learn how to write, you know, TV and film and how to direct stuff. Right. Um, do you think that your career is ever going to be in a position to where you would have your own independent company? Or do you think that you're going to end up working for like uh, uh, for like a, a Blumhouse Productions or or any or any of those micro studios in Canada or in the U.S., for example? Do you think you're ever going to get there? Uh, hopefully one day, you know, I've, I've, I've always wanted to have my own production company where we can green light, you know, similar, similar movies that I like that I necessarily don't want to make, you know, that, that speak to me, but are not stories I'm going to tell. Um, Mm -hmm. so I still hope that one day that can be a possibility. Um, but again, it's mostly, you need to try and get a foot in the door somewhere, and have some sort of success so that then people are open to you saying, okay, now I'm going to foster some ideas and, and whatever, which, you know, is rare. But when it happens, you look at 10 years ago, if you thought Jordan Peele was going to be, <laughs> you know, monkey Paw productions was going to be doing so much stuff. Like people would have laughed you out of the room. They would have been like right. that guy who does like sketch comedy. Like, I don't think so. And then now it's like, okay, the guy, the guy is one of the foremost, you know, voices in social commentary horror that we have working now. And he's got a production company that's green lighting all sorts of things um, and working with guys like JJ as well. So it's, it's one of those things where you never say never because you look at people that you had never even heard of six years ago who are now making huge moves. Mm-hmm. Like, 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 like six years ago, I never heard of the name. Uh, um, oh my God, I can't, I can't. Oh my God, I'm blanking on his name. Um, Denis Villeneuve. Six years ago, I've never even heard of that guy. Right. But, but now that you know, you know, the first movie that I ever saw of his was uh, was Sicario. I loved it. I love Blade Runner. I love Prisoners. You know, now, now I'm like, where the hell did this guy come from? You know, <laughs> he came it's from just, Quebec. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, you know. It, I think, I think that's such a fun feeling to where you can discover a guy out of nowhere, mm-hmm. or you can discover a guy based on your love of someone else. Have you, have you found that you've discovered other writers because you like JJ, because you like uh, Nolan, because you like um, Denis? Have you found that ha- happened to you a lot? Yeah. So. You know, especially when we're talking about like a JJ, because he he writes a lot of his stuff, but he also shepherds other writers. So, you know, he will find other people who have a unique voice and get them into like a more prominent position. Um, Nolan writes all his own stuff. So like he, Nolan's the kind of guy who I love, but he doesn't open very many doors for other people, it feels like. Uh, no, he does not. Like he, he doesn't hold the door open for you. Um, nope. And Denny Villeneuve, he works with lots of people, but they're all people that even when the movie is huge, you probably haven't really heard of them. So I mean, so it it, it depends. There's somebody like a a James Wan, you know, in the horror world, who he has produced so many horror things and brought a lot of these screenwriting talents with him and let them direct some stuff. So he's opened the door for me to find like a lot of filmmakers um, like David Sandberg, who did Shazam and Annabelle two um, Gary Doberman, who wrote the nun and directed Annabelle three um, who have done all these other things and are starting to do more. And of course, Lee Winnell, who 
did Saw with him is now like an amazing director. He's always been a good horror writer, but now he's like directing a lot of bigger movies. Um, so there are certain guys that they open the door for other people and really introduce you to new voices and new talent. Whereas mm-hmm. Nolan, he's he's kind of not that guy. You know, yeah, Spiel, he, as much as he gets compared to Spielberg, the only th- main difference is that Spielberg opened the door for so many people, like an unbelievable amount of people that he produced their movie or backed their movie when nobody else would. Um, and Nolan has done none of that. He is only worried about Christopher Nolan. Yeah, but yeah, but you saying um, it's funny. It's funny that people compare uh, Nolan to Spielberg because when you said that, I wanted to laugh in your face because Nolan is great, but Nolan is no Spielberg. No, he's, <laughs> he's not. But but people today will will talk about them in the same breath, and I always yeah, I'm like yeah, eh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I love both. I love both of them, but I just feel like they're not the same. It's not the same thing. Come on, come on. I mean, Nolan is great. Uh, uh, you know, minus the fact that he needs to relax on his sound editing. <laughs> it's just weird to me that he is in such a position of power, and yet you hardly ever see a movie from executive producer Christopher Nolan that he's not all over. Whereas you look at yeah, Spielberg, Peter Jackson, like all Robert Zemeckis, all these guys who Guillermo del Toro, who aren't the ones making the movies, but they're the guys who they're getting their name out there to open the door for other people. And Nolan has never done that. Do you think, do you think that he's just um, like, he's just like a true auteur and he doesn't really want other people to play in his sandbox other than his brother, you know, Jonathan Nolan was a great writer in his own right. Yeah, he is. Uh, And maybe, or it could just be that the one time that he did try to do that was he let his D.O. He produced a movie that his D.O.P. Wally Pfister directed, which ended up being Transcendence with Johnny Depp. And it was a huge bomb. And uh, so maybe it was like he was just like, no, it's not worth it. Putting my name on something that I don't actually have control over wasn't worth it. Um, The last couple things that I want to ask you here really quick before I wrap up the show. Um, What do you think? What do you think um, the future of going to the movies and and the overall future of Hollywood is going to be like if we ever do come out of this uh, this nightmarish quarantine situation that we are uh, dealing in now? Do you think that we're ever going to be able to go to the movie theaters again and be able to sit next to someone without freaking the hell out? <laughs> I think eventually, yes, but it depends how long we go before we get back to that um where right now we've got so many studios that are sitting on 200 million dollar movies that they can't put out without losing money right and you wonder when theaters reopen is there going to be just a glut of blockbusters that movies that shouldn't tank are going to are going to bomb because people can't afford to go to you know, eight movies over eight weeks? Or are people going to be so excited just to be back in a room laughing at a comedy with other people that they're going to want to go for that? And the only thing I can see maybe being a sea change is that right now the things that the studios are known for, for the most part, are gigantic $100 million blockbusters. They make six of them a year. They drop them out. And there's a couple of those like Fox Searchlight or somebody who's making $20 million movies. And then there's Blumhouse that nothing costs more than, you know, $8 million or whatever. But I, I think we're going to see a lot of those people start to make those smaller movies that are less of a risk. Because then if something like this happens again and they have to sell it to streaming, it's not like they're going to lose their shirt where they spent too much to make the movie. So I do think... <laughs> Theaters, I think theaters will survive because there are still lots of people who love the experience and really want to be there as long as this ends before all those theaters go out of business, which like right now we just don't. It's such an unknown because even here theaters have been open since August, Um, but in Canada, our numbers are creeping back up again and we're going to get to a point where they're probably going to shut down a bunch of theaters again. 
and even I went and saw Tenet, New Mutants, Liam Neeson's Honest Thief in theater. Um, and this weekend, I really wanted to see the new Blumhouse movie Freaky, directed by the guy who did the Happy Death Day movies. And, uh, like, the numbers have been creeping up, so, like, I don't feel comfortable going to the theater right now, so I'm going to wait for that on demand in December, when normally, like, I would be the first guy out the door to go to the theater. So... It's such an unknown time, dude. I just don't know how it's all going to play out. But I love the theatrical experience. Some of my favorite memories of movies are seeing a movie on opening night with a packed house, having people cheer, you know, sitting in a room with a hundred strangers and everyone's crying. Like these are the, the things that remind you like the good side of humanity and just why the power of movies and art is so important to like nourish the soul, which sounds cheesy, but it it's true, man. Like nothing gives me a high than seeing a great movie with a crowd who's totally into it. And you just leave the theater like buzzing. So that doesn't happen even when I watch a great movie at home. Uh, and I consciously have to leave my phone in another room. <laughs> if oh, I'm really? watching, if I'm watching a movie at home, because I'll be too tempted to pick it up. And even if I only look at it for five minutes, that's five minutes where I'm not paying attention to the movie, which I never bring. I turn my phone off at the theater like I'm not one of these people who takes a call. So at home, I just if I'm watching a movie I've been waiting for now that we only can watch movies at home, uh, I just have to be really conscious of that because I I hate it. Mm-hmm. No, I, I generally put my when like like when I'm watching a movie for the first time, I I, I can sit in a room with my phone and not pick it up once but you know I, I i totally understand it all right so um my last couple questions for you and i swear these are the last couple questions um what do you what do you like doing more like like what gives you more satisfaction writing a movie or directing a movie i would say d- directing a movie only because that means that you're actually doing it and okay. and I only say that because I've written a bunch of movies, like I said, that, you know, I dream of having enough money to make one day, but so far I haven't gotten to that point. And so it's just like that, you know, untapped potential. When you finish a script, though, you know, it, it's so satisfying. And all I can say is just work to get the script done. And if that's all you ever do, that's enough. Because um, that does feel great. And then you can get people's opinions on it. And that definitely helps. But just for me personally, when you're actually on set and directing it, because you know that eventually you're going to have something people can watch. Um, whereas when, you know, I finish a great script, it's still not a tangible thing that a lot of people are going to have access to. Right. And my last question here, and then I'll, uh, uh, I'll let you go. Um, who, uh, who would you say is your favorite director and who is the guy that influenced you the most, whether it's in writing or directing? Well, you know, and people will roll their eyes, but it's, it's still, it's still after all these years. And even though his output lately hasn't been as, as good as the golden years, but, um, Spielberg still for me. You know, my favorite director of all time made more of my favorite movies than anyone else. Uh, His movies definitely had the most influence on me and even my style, partly because he influenced so many of the people that I also admire now. Mm -hmm. So, like, I, I personally feel we wouldn't have some of the guys like J.J. or the Duffer Brothers doing what they're doing if Spielberg hadn't come along first. So even though those are some of the guys that I'm like looking at now as really enjoying, I still got to, you know, bring it back to the beard because without Spielberg, it, it just wouldn't, we wouldn't have those guys. Um, and so I always, even when I do like these crazy comedies or something, I always just remember that, you know, Spielberg movies, even if they're about terrible things, there's always something in there to remind you about the heart and hope of humanity. Um, and in times like these, that's something that's certainly important to latch onto and uh, something I always sort of strive for to get that 
that magic feeling when you're watching a movie that you're transported, you forget your problems for two hours, and you can just enjoy what's on the screen, and it'll somehow enrich your life in some way. And that's what I always hope to do when I sit down to write a script. That's awesome. And with that, I just want to say uh, thank you to Matt Crandall for coming on today. But uh, that'll do it, guys, for this edition of the Red Wall Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, uh, Marcelo Nachosa, and I'd just like to say thank you for listening to episode 62 entitled The Director. Uh, Matt, where can the good people reach out to you online if they want to chat with you about film or anything? Yeah, best places on Twitter, at Matt Crandall. Hit me up on there. That's the best spot. All right, guys. So with that being said, as I often say, I'll see you when I see you.